Good morning. Hello from Start Your Week in the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and welcome from a windy park somewhere on the North Circular where Ian Dunton and I are mingling outdoors because that's now legal and people haven't been doing it for weeks already or anything like that. Good morning, Ian. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Yes, very well. Thank you. Uh, so uh, we, we are ima- mingling in an imaginary park that doesn't really exist. It's like a virtual environment. The Rule of Six is back this week. <laughs> Government has wisely scheduled each of these unlockings for Mondays so that people don't go berserk as they would if it was a Friday. Mm. Well, people are already way ahead of the rules and have been doing this for ages. Is, is this going to complicate further reopening? Is it going to make it impossible to, for the government to put the brakes on in future if need be, if it needs to stick to the, the data, not the dates, as it said it would? It's basically very politically difficult for it to stick to the data and not the dates now, unless something really comes along and judders everything sideways. But th- these dates are mostly set in people's heads. And it was kind of like that. I don't know if you remember, like almost the moment he said them, it was, you know, no earlier than. But then very quickly, it felt like no later than as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing is, it's quite, you know, we, we are already seeing the impacts of the schools opening. We're not seeing a substantial rise in infection rates. I mean, basically, we've been around the sort of 5K, 6K infection rate for a good lot, for a good few weeks now. You know, we will see some sort of increase probably. But the truth is, most of the time, when you're hanging out with people outside, there is very, very low risk of infection. And if people are doing, if, if they are genuinely following these rules, you know, it's different if they start moving inside. And it's perfectly possible that if you have a bunch of people getting pissed in a garden and it starts raining, you you know, they're going to go inside rather than just sit in that. All of that's possible. But if people follow the rules, there's no particular reason that the cases should shoot out of control. It's also just a funny timing, isn't it? Of, of It sort of feels almost like God coordinated it because it, it just comes in the moment that the weather starts to improve. So if, if it is going to shoot out of control, we will definitely find out by Thursday because there's at least three days of above 20 degree temperatures in the meantime. So it does sort of, this week does feel like this kind of, the light shining down from the heaven. It, feel, it feels like the end of lockdown. And I know it's just a stage, but it, it definitely feels like you, you might be able to breathe again this week. But, but there is now a lot of talk about a third wave at some point. You just mentioned that you know, infection rates on school children in particular have been rising since schools went back. Is the government more concerned with sticking to the roadmap than ensuring the virus is, is properly suppressed? They basically set themselves on a pathway that is ultimately about the vaccine. It's a gamble on the fact that the vaccine will take care of all of this stuff. And you can see why, because it's the one area that they've succeeded in. I mean, really, it's partly to do with the centralized state and, you know, the task force and the NHS. But nevertheless, it's succeeded. And so they have put all the fucking money on the table on the vaccine. It's not really on the roadmap. And it's certainly not on preventing the variants from getting a foothold. And any time you speak to anyone who knows what they're talking about, this stuff, that's what they're concerned about is the mm. variants. They're not really, you know, when you look at the data coming in from Israel, it's, it's pretty encouraging on what the vaccine can do. We've already vaccinated for first doses and in many cases, for second doses, some of the most sort of vulnerable people in this country. That all looks like it's going in the right direction. It's the variants that concern people. And yet there's no real... It seems, you know, when, when you look at the issues that you would naturally think of, the first one is, you know, what, what are you doing to try and basically close the border against infections coming in? There's ultimately pretty much fuck all. When it's about tracking and tracing, when it's about ventilation in public buildings or in hospitals and schools, there's, I beg your pardon, not hospitals, in schools, there's pretty much fuck all. What there mm. is is just the vaccine program and this gamble. And it is a gamble. That is what it is. 
that none of the variants come along and take root that can get out from underneath the vaccine, that operate and hospitalize people regardless of whether they've had the vaccine. That's ultimately the only strategy the government has is the vaccine and rolling the dice and praying that none of these variants blow it to smithereens. The BBC uh, had a, a disease modeler from Loughborough University, Dr. Duncan Robertson, saying we're essentially in a new pandemic and the new variants are effectively, they are a new virus. This is the first time we're lifting restrictions with a new variant, he said. I mean, that, there's no, no messaging around that from government at all. Is it going to be politically possible to pause this rollback if, as you say, w- you know, one or more of the variants proves to be resistant to the vaccine and we start to see visible increases? I think it will be. I mean, you know, and this will probably happen, you know, in a few months. This will basically, this is almost, it's, and maybe I'm being too optimistic by saying this, but but it, it, it seems to me that this is a question of, you know, what happens in late summer, sort of autumn, going into the winter? Will there be another lockdown then? Ultimately, is this the moment that we guarantee this never has to happen again? Or is this now, you know, just us not taking care of it and going into essentially a sort of almost seasonal arrangement with the ship? Um, I mean, it doesn't bode well when you look at what they're doing. Okay, so we've got 2,000 cases of the South African variant in France, 2,000 new cases a day of the South African variant in France. The government's been told about this for fucking ages. It's done so far absolutely nothing. It won't put France on the red list because it says we've got all this fright, we've got all the hauliers coming in and we need them to come in. Um, then they announce that they're going to start testing people 48 hours after they arrive. But that th- this is last night, Grant Sharps announced mm. this, but that it won't apply until April the 6th. I mean, there's so much I find completely just baffling about that announcement. I mean, firstly, why the fuck April the 6th? Like, why mm. the fuck do you have the... If something needs to be done, there is no point wasting weeks until you decide to do it with this virus. That is exactly what has got us into this problem again and again and again, and they keep on fucking doing it. Secondly, why only up to 48 hours after they arrive? Why isn't that done on the border? And third, I don't see how the argument over hauliers, over trade, necessarily impacts what we know about people bringing in the virus. I mean, most of the evidence suggests that reseeding comes from international travel for sort of holidays and for business, not from hauliers. Who, don't hang, who typically don't hang around that much. So you can come up with putting France on the red list and exempting hauliers if that's what you want to do. Instead, we get into the situation where everything just feels like you can't, don't have any flexibility, you don't do what needs to be done, and the things that you do do, you do too late. And if that is going to be the attitude with the variants, you know, as we go forward over the next few months, then, you know, I would feel pretty dispirited and pretty pessimistic about the way that their gamble is going to work out. Do you think we're in for a, a round of, of blame Europe on this as well as on, on everything else? Because Johnson's already been saying that, uh, you know, cases of, from Europe could wash up on our shores as if it's this kind of, you know, European contagion, like, uh, you know, the dad's army title sequences, of arrow, <laughs> arrows, you know, fizz, fizzing arrows of uh, a virus coming towards the channel. Are we in for a bit of that sort of messaging again? Yeah, you know, I worry about this and I don't even worry about it just from the government because I see it start to sort of take root in people's kind of psychological instincts of, of how they think about this. So the coronavirus European debate is, you know, one of the first ways that we have seen the sort of post-Brexit psychological sort of categories play out. And it's not very attractive, right? Like it's always about us versus them. You know, I read a mm. report this morning on, I mean, for, for ages people have been pushing for the UK 
to give some uh, vaccines to the Republic of Ireland, which makes sense. I mean, it's, it makes sense morally. It's the right thing to do. It makes sense in terms of PR because, you know, you're not sending any fucking vaccines anyway. You are essentially yeah. practicing vaccine. Great PR for the border as it stands. Right, you right, know, yeah. wonderful arrangements. Yeah, well, exactly. And also, you have an open border due to the custom to the common travel area with the Republic of Ireland. So there is the UK's national interest is also in making sure that Ireland is vaccinated. So it makes sense, and it looks like they were starting to do it. But even that story, when it got reported, as people saying, "Oh, and it will be a poke in the eye for Europe," and you just think, "Oh, that's quite a telling little." That that is your framework for looking at hmm. this as, as a way to fuck Europe. You would actually deliver some vaccines. The only the only way in which you can countenance giving vaccines to Europe, even to Ireland, which is as 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 I don't want to get in trouble here. As close as culturally and family and cl- as close as possible. And we love Ireland. Right. Yeah. yeah. And even in that case, it's, it could only be sold through, oh, we'll do it to fuck the Europeans. You know, and that kind of, that's not just Johnson. I mean, in a way, on the vaccine stuff, it, not in policy terms, in policy terms, he's been a bit disgraceful, but... Um, actually, in terms of the rhetoric, Johnson hasn't really pushed that sort of vaccine warfare bit. It's just been yeah. pumping out from the papers, pumping out from the backbenchers, and even from quite otherwise quite sort of balanced or, or judicious newspapers, you start to see that narrative kind of take hold in people's minds. Well, speaking of income, we had an, another typically crass comment from Boris Johnson at the Conservative Party Spring Conference on Saturday. The general view is that people have had quite a few days off like it's all been a jolly holiday for everybody and we've all been sitting around, you know, mm. sitting around our imaginary pools. This is contrary to official advice that people should work from home if possible. That is the government's own official advice. Where, where is this coming from? Is he just talking off the cuff again? It's another another sort of telegraph column in, in the works scribbled on his cuff. I think that's exactly what it is. I just think like th- these moments, you get the same when, you know, that hospital, right at the beginning of this thing where he said, oh, I shook everyone's hand in hospital, kind of proudly going against those, you know, those cretinous scientists who don't know what they're talking about. They're all hysterics. Like they are the moments that reveal his, his proper disposition. And I just thought like when he said it, I mean, I, I got angry about this comment for like, for I think I felt just 12 hours solid because it was just, you know, if you have any connection with what things are actually like in this country. And I'm not, I mean, you know, if I, the people who have kept their job are working harder, are working extremely fucking hard. Many, the people I know who are going through some of the hardest times are also people that have lost their job. And so even, the, even when there's income coming in, there's just this utter aimlessness that's imposed on you. But putting that to one side, the people who have got a job and kids, everyone I know that has a job and kids has never worked harder before in their fucking life. Well, they've basically yeah. suddenly been given a second additional job of educate your child. So everyone's doing twice as much in the same amount of time. For, for him to come out and do this shit is so annoying. I can barely come up with the words to fully fucking describe it. And it speaks to that kind of instinctive Tory, oh, they're all trying to, you know, just bunk off. You know, people are, you know, that old sort of Britannia Unchained, oh, the Brits are so lazy. You've got to keep your fucking eye on them, don't you? You, know, you never know what the lower classes will get up to. That's essentially where his head's at. And... In it, you get that sense of what he really, of what he would be if he wasn't prime minister, right? Like, imagine that he wasn't prime minister. Imagine he was still on the back bench and Theresa May was prime minister when this thing happened. Yeah. What would he be doing? Of course, he'd be in the fucking CRG. You know, whether by membership or whether just by, by shouting his mouth off. Of course, he'd be writing articles in the Telegraph. 
about how this. He'd is the have elected thing. himself leader of the CRG. He'd have, dis- he'd, have, he'd have decided he was the leader of the CRG. I, I could be, he well, yeah. I mean, firstly, it would be the way to get the spotlight, right? And then, secondly, it corresponds to every fucking instinct he has ever had, you know, against the nanny state, ancient English liberties, but not really actually ever standing up for people's actual human rights or their individual freedom. But just that kind of fuzzy sense of, I'll oh, smoke my fag if I want to, and blah, blah, blah. All of that, it corresponds exactly. And then, by virtue of that, and these comments still coming out now, you see that inner division in his mind when it's come to this pandemic that's constantly about his instinct, which is, well, this is all load of ruddy fucking foreign, foreign nonsense. And the bits where he's getting briefings from people going, if you don't do this, then hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. And those delays over and over again on first lockdown, on second lockdown, on third lockdown, those two-week to six-week delays on various proposals, that comes down to that fucking division that he has in his mind, which is then reflected in, in Cabinet. So what you're seeing when you hear that, when you hear him talk that way, is it writ large in the sky why tens of thousands of people died that didn't have to die because he's got this mucky, pointless, reactionary shite bubbling around in his head and it has slowed down government policymaking. Okay, what about Labour then? We're hearing all this talk about Starmer supposedly shuffling Annalise Dodds out of the shadow cabinet. What does it all mean? What's happening there? So, yeah, and, and you know, Labour are pouring cold water on this, but, you know, that's how things go. Because, I mean, they're not yeah. talking about, you know, doing it now. They're talking about doing it after the local elections in May. Um, I mean, I think this would be rather a shame. Annalise Dodds is... I think really not given the respect that she deserves. I think when you look at the stuff that she's been saying, she's been coming up with really, really interesting economic policy making, really smart, big brain stuff. To be fair, no one really challenges the big brain stuff. They just say, oh, she's not communicating effectively. I just sort of think, I don't know, man. I mean, it's it's hard for the leader of the opposition to get a hearing at the moment, let alone the the sort of shadow chancellor. She's not, you know, I'm not going to say every time she makes a speech, it's this sort of charisma powerhouse of, of whatever, but they are really good, thoughtful speeches. No one ever sort of su- suggested, you know, that the chancellor has to be this 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 person that operates in that way. Typically, they're not. And I know, you know, that hasn't always worked out, but you, you look at Gordon Brown, you look at George Osborne, they weren't the, the one that you bring front of camera all the time, necessarily. They're the one that's doing yeah. the thinking, the engine room stuff for how your policy is going to work. And the policies that she's come up with, even though no one seems to give a fuck, no one seems remotely interested, uh, they just want to criticize how people look on TV. You know, these are really smart approaches to the way you might do a progressive economic agenda. So it's a bit baffling to me. There is the counter swing to that, which is you look at the names that are brought up, you know, as possible replacements, people like Rachel Reeves or Lisa Nandy, or, you know, th- th- there are really impressive figures who are being underutilized right now in the Labour Party. I mean, Lisa Nandy got given the Foreign Office, but that just seems a weird, it always seemed a weird call for me. I don't know why you would put Lisa Nandy in foreign, mm. except that, you know, she was a leadership contender. You've got to give her a really impressive post. And that seemed to be the one that slotted in. But it doesn't seem to like it suits what she's best at necessarily, although I think she's been good in the role. Jess Phillips has won an awful lot of plaudits on the back of recent weeks and violence against women, but obviously is always hugely impressive, hugely independent minded and actual sort of human. I know it seems weird to, to use the word human as some sort of, you know, flattery for a politician, but it is actually incredibly rare with, with an actual personality. Um, Yvette Cooper, that seems like they're trying to tempt back. You've got these sort of two figures, Yvette Cooper and Hilary Benn, who I think have, have succeeded in the select committee area, which is basically a sort of testimony to the fact that 
really talented Labour politicians were having to go to select committees to do anything under Jeremy Corbyn. And now I think there seems to be an effort to just look, is there anything on the front bench that, that would interest you? So the, the bad side is I don't think Annalise does should go anywhere. And I, I think probably the Labour deniers are wrong and they are planning on shifting her. On the flip side, it does actually give you a sense of there's a lot of pent up talent in the Labour Party that is waiting to to break through. A small reshuffle of some sort might might do some good and actually bring them forward. A couple of shorter ones for the week. This ever-given mess with the boat, is it really going to screw up 10% of world trade? You're a trade guy. I don't, yeah, I'm not huge on massive boats. Um, <laughs> they've, moved it, they've moved it this morning, or at least it seems, it seems like it's afloat, which might still yeah. take a long time to, to move forward. It wouldn't be surprising. And it wouldn't be surprising, you know, in a way that tells you, because, you know, obviously, sewer is hugely important sort of line. But also this whole thing, if you notice, speaks to the nonsense that we've heard from Brexiters over the last few years of the death of geography. You know, them saying distance <laughs> doesn't matter anymore, yeah. right? You know, distance is not an issue. It's the internet. You know, you've got all this technology. It doesn't really matter. We can trade just as easily with Asia. If you can trade just as easily with Asia as you can with Europe, perhaps someone would like to explain to me why boats typically like using the Suez Canal rather than going around the bottom of Africa. Like that right there is a really powerful indication of why distance actually does still matter. It's the kind of thing that a child would understand, but many leavers have really, really struggled with. And I would advise them to take a good hard look at that map and a good hard look at the new routes that boats might take and conclude whether it might have some implications for the arguments that they've made over the last few years. Yeah, it's paging Dan Hannan. I mean, there's, a, there's a great piece in The Guardian about how low interest rates and high oil prices conspired to make ship owners put all their eggs in these like 20,000 box baskets. And it was an accident waiting to happen. And apparently one analyst told them half the world's ports can't even deal with ships this size. So it's like a hangover from the kind of world of you know the idea that bigger is always going to be mm. better. And you get one little thing. Uh, another quick one, SNP versus the new Alba party. Alex Salmon's Alba party. Now, you know, Two English people on the podcast here. We don't know, we don't want to talk too much about it, but we've got Kate Forbes, MSP, the Scottish Cabinet Secretary for Finance, as, as a guest on the bunker tomorrow. So that should get some detail on that. But what what do you think's happening there, Ian? I think this is quite damaging, to be honest. I mean, I know you know you you first saw it, you saw him come out with it, and of course the the instant answer was, well, it's a different electoral system, so you're not necessarily talking about. It. I, I I get all of that, but this is the first time that there's been a proper split in the in the independence movement, and. It's quite a brutal split. Like, I mean, you look, I mean, quite quickly, you've got sort of people moving over, Kenny McCaskill, Neil Handy. Suddenly, I mean, that's quite, all of a sudden, and it's a sort of drip feed that makes you think, well, there, there could be more of this, actually. So that in itself is quite telling. Then you have that sort of cultural dimension to it, that until now, there was this really quite powerful projection from from sort of the Scottish independence movement of, look, this is you know, not like Westminster, we're, you know, much more sort of pro-immigration, we're, you know, much better on women's issues, on equality, on, you know, this is like a progressive centre-left movement that can break off from Westminster. Now, Alex Salmon makes that much more difficult because of the stories that swirl around him, the accusations that swirl around him, and the fact that for many people who are loyal to him, and this is a minority, definitely a minority of sort of independent supporters and people in Scotland, they don't seem to give a fuck about any of that stuff, right? In fact, they talk about, in fact, when I see some of the tweets that have been sent to me by people defending him, they read like you could, you could literally replace his names with, with Trump and Scotland with America and you just have a Trump supporters tweet right there. You know, if he's the one that really cares about Scotland, Scotland first, but, you know, literally saying things like Scotland first, there's this kind of machismo to it, this kind of unreconstructed machismo. 
that sort of signals this quite odd cultural distinction between these camps. Now, you put aside any of the electoral issues, that is really the first time we've seen any split of that sort in on that camp since really he started, he powered ahead, you know, in the Scottish elections and changed the dynamics of how this stuff operated. So I wouldn't, if, if I was a supporter of independence, I wouldn't be remotely sanguine about what we're seeing right now. It feels like a really pivotal moment to me. I think you'll get a much more uh, expertise-laden description in the programme this week than the one that I just offered. But to me, I don't think it's something that we should underestimate. People's popular fronts of Glasgow. <laughs> so it's, it's distasteful, but we're going to have to just close on this one. The confirmation of Boris Johnson's four-year affair with Jennifer O'Curry. We were shocked. shocked. The world was shocked to them. Shocked to this. this shocked that Boris Johnson was shagging in the family home while his wife was being treated for cancer. Shocked that Boris Johnson was carrying on with Jennifer O'Curry, having sat next to the Queen at the Olympics. Shocked, shocked, shocked. Well, apart from a few sort of salacious front pages over the weekend, do you think it's going to make any difference at all, Ian? Is it, is it just priced in? Do people expect this from him? I think it'll make absolutely no difference whatsoever. The money part is the real... You know that that's where there's a there's a public interest in it, and we, we... yeah, it's like 126 thousand pounds of public money sent to the woman that Boris Johnson was carrying on exactly, with. yeah, um, which we were sort of aware about before, and it made no difference then. Um, it made no difference at the last election. You know, I don't think you know there's a bit of chatter of what if she'd come out with this before the last election. I don't think anyone was under any you know illusions about this stuff. Um, there is a fundamental hypocrisy to the way the Tory press operates with this stuff. If it doesn't matter if he does it, it would matter more. You know, w- would it be the same if it was Nicola Sturgeon who'd been found out? You know, what would be their response? And I imagine it would be more vociferous than it is here. But also, I would, I would kind of, I do see from from people that really want to get Johnson a kind of a concerning, a thing that that conservatives used to do in the eighties, I think, which is. This idea of if he can't be trusted in his personal life or his private life, then he can't be trusted with the politics. Now, it, I totally get that it's demonstrably the case that he can be trusted neither in his personal life and neither in politics. And it's very tempting to make that link. There are also there have been many people who do have disastrous personal lives uh, and are quite catastrophic. You wouldn't want to be friends with them, but th- that are actually very good at politics and the kind of person you might want in place. And generally, I work on the assumption of I don't really care how much of a cunt you are. You know, I just don't see that that is pertinent to me as a voter when it comes to someone in politics. And I feel like that's been a principle of of left-wing thought for some time in this country of, you know, we don't need to go full France where everybody has to, like, almost by statutory demand, have affairs <laughs> all the time. But it could be good if we take a bit of France of, you know, we don't really give a shit what you get up to in your personal life. I thought that was the, the, the standard sort of left-wing approach and I think the right one. And there's been a bit of chiseling away of that over the last few days. I understand why. I totally get it. But it's just like you, you probably don't want that aiming back at you when it's someone that, that you like. And eventually it will come back at you. Yeah, it, it has been tradition that it's the sex scandal that sinks the Conservative uh, politician, and this seems to have just ended the old-fashioned sex scandal. But one day the Conservatives will be the opposition, and it's like they've torched every ground to call for resignations from anyone. So, you know, you can imagine a, a future Labour government in the distant, misty future maybe having the complications and uh, embarrassing little episodes that the later Blair governments had, how could this Conservative Party then turn around and say, what a disgrace, you must resign, Minister? Yeah, although, you know, don't, you know, just because something's deeply and obviously hypocritical, it doesn't necessarily mean that they won't do it. Um, although I do think, you know, if if anything good can come from Boris Johnson being Prime Minister, to me, it's 
that there might be a modernization of the way we think about the personal life of the person in number 10. Because, I mean, if you remember, not so, you know, people, you'd still have, do you remember when Ed Miliband got married? And that was taken as this sort of, you know, this is a couple that have been together unmarried for, for years and years and years. And then suddenly they get married and you're like, why are you doing that, man? It doesn't, it didn't feel like that you want to do it. You just thought you've got to be married to get into number 10. I mean, now you have, you know, someone, they're not married. They have just had a child. That's, it's a modern arrangement. We might not like anything about the people involved or the circumstances in which this takes place or the sheer hypocrisy of the Tory press and Tory politicians who would have made very different noises if it was someone else. But you are at least establishing a precedent, a modern precedent for how families actually operate in the country being the criteria of how it, how it happens in Downing Street. And if that could at least set in place so that this becomes less of a big deal going forward. So we don't have to have that thing of Samantha Cameron gazing like what you literally don't even know what her voice sounds like for five years, because all you see of her is her gazing lovingly at the husband and then going up to give them a kiss after a conference. I mean, that stuff was just fucking gross, gross as fuck. And if we see less of that and more of the modern arrangements, we could at least have salvaged one good thing from this god awful mess of an administration. Well, I, for one, look forward to a world where conservative newspapers enthusiastically support people who can't count the number of kids they've got and live on public money. <laughs> so good for that. <laughs> Ian, thanks for getting up at this ungodly hour to talk to me. No, not at all. Thank you very much. Good morning. <laughs> Listeners, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with a full panel show. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio nourishment. A nice review on Apple Podcasts will be a real favourite if you've got the time. And, of course, you can also back us on Patreon for early podcasts and lots of other good stuff too. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Podmasters production.